there, everybody. This is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're back with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, in which we take your favorite and maybe not so favorite species of animals, we review them and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and of course, aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, though we have been chatting with some as of late. We have. We've had some really interesting guests on recently and have many more to come that are really, really exciting. So if you haven't checked those out yet, I recommend it and stay tuned for more. But for this episode, no expertise. I'm sorry, it's just us. We do, however, attempt to get our information from reliable resources. I would say that we succeed in getting our <laughs> information from reliable resources. Yeah. So who's first, honey? It's you. Right. <laughs> so my animal comes from our social media poll. That's right. It was up on Facebook and Twitter. Yes. And this time, the red velvet ant won. I don't think it's a red velvet ant. Well. <sighs> I think it's just a velvet ant. Well, that's what it's called. This one's called, at least. Oh, this one in particular is called a red velvet ant? Yes. Wow. Okay. So velvet ant actually refers to a whole family when you're talking taxonomically. Oh, okay. So I chose the red velvet ant, scientific name, Decimutilla occidentalis. I like that name. Yes. Did you choose it because of the name? No. <laughs> I would have chosen something easier. <laughs> but I chose this one because I remember seeing a velvet ant as a child, and this is probably the most likely one it was based on being in Florida. Oh, I see. So this is something that you would find where we live? Possibly, yeah. Ooh. So I'm getting my information from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, found at bugs.ufl.edu, and also their Department of Entomology and Nematology, found at entnemdept.ufl.edu. Love them. Yes. Let's jump right into it. What do they look like? Ants. Got it. But okay. they're not ants. Oh, they're not. Not ants. They are wingless wasps. Oh, my. Well, let me rephrase that. The females of the species are wingless. Okay. Whereas the males do have wings. Whoa. Okay. Yes. But they're wasps. Um, the females are colored red and black. Like little, it looks like fur. Powerful. Yeah. And they have a stinger. Love that for them. The males, already mentioned, they can fly. They are similarly colored and they do not have a stinger. Interesting. What a trade-off there. Yeah. They get the wings, but they lose the stinger. Yeah, it was like between the two of them, we have what we <laughs> consider a whole wasp. We have one fully functional wasp between yeah. the two of us. Yeah. In terms of the size, females reach a maximum length of one inch or two and a half centimeters. That's a pretty big wasp, huh? Yeah. And the females are slightly larger than males. The location, per the Aquarium of the Pacific's website, is the eastern United States, New York to Florida, and the western United States to Missouri, Texas, and Arizona. Pretty wide range. They're found in meadows, clover fields, at forests, edges, and deserts. So pretty varied there. They're kind of generalists, huh? Sounds like it. Uh, they belong to the taxonomic family Mutilidae. And like I mentioned, a velvet ant can refer to any member of that family. Are they all wasps? Yes. The common thing is having that fuzzy look and also the females being wingless wasps. Okay, okay. So this is just one of those things where their common name was ascribed to them based on their sort of general appearance? Yeah. Okay. We suck. 
We do this sometimes. <laughs> so jumping into our first category of effectiveness, which we define as having physical attributes that grant them an edge in the things they do. Make them real good at doing stuff. Yeah. I'm giving the Red Velvet Ant a 7 out of 10. The first thing I'd like to talk about is the warning coloration. Sure. So this is also known as a posematic coloration. I love that. Yes. So it's meant to say, don't mess with me. You're not going to like it. <laughs> so that can allude to a bad taste, uh, some sort of defense mechanism. In this case, it's its stinger. Sure. And venom. Oh, and venom. Yes. Oh, they're also venomous. Yes. I think most wasps that have a stinger like this will also have some also has some sort of venom. Uh, bees do as well. Okay. So I guess a lot of times, for some reason, when I think of venom, I think of like some sort of like toxic, like, but like a venom can just be some sort of substance that like causes pain, right? It's like a chemical. It's technically uh, a toxin that is delivered through either fangs or a sting. Sure. That kind of thing. Sure, sure, sure. In this case, it's a sting. So the coarse hair that is on them is called seta, and it's good at reflecting sunlight. So they're very visible animals. I personally remember seeing one in a parking lot in downtown Jacksonville. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. But they're easy to spot? Like yeah, when you easy. See... Really it's, easy. It's like a little uh, laser pointer dot just <laughs> buzzing around yeah. Jacksonville. Uh-huh. And in the males, this coloration is considered a form of mimicry. Mimicry? Because they have the coloration, but they don't have anything dangerous to back it up with since they lack the stinger. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they are trying to ride on the coattails of <laughs> yeah. the sort of intimidation factor of the females. Yeah. So when you talk fight or flight, it's in this species, it was separated between the genders. So <laughs> the females got fight, the males got flight, literally. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. My next effectiveness point is behind their venom. Uh, so before I go into their venom, I want to talk about how we describe how toxic a, a venom is. And there's a value called the LD50 value. Oh, I'd never heard of this before. And this is LD, the letters, and then the 50, 50, is a subscript. Is how it's usually written. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, all right. I got gotcha. you. Now, this is short for 50% lethal dose meaning the amount of the material that kills 50% of the test animals. Huh, that's yes. an interesting metric. It's also known as the median lethal dose. All right. A lot of other times you'll hear lethal dose described in, like, here, here's the minimum amount that has ever killed someone, right? Where I think this, this metric is more useful. I'm assuming that the test animals for this metric were not humans correct <laughs> so, so what is this tested on so usually when when an ld50 value is given it's also given with a specific kind of test animal and how the venom or material is delivered so i'm about to talk about the red velvet ants venom and that was tested on mice and intravenously okay so we're shooting up mice with that sweet red velvet. <laughs> yes. So the venom of the of all, pretty much all the velvet ants is not particularly toxic. So the LD50, for example, the Dasimutilla kluge, which another is another species of velvet ant, is only 71 milligrams per kilogram. So what that value means is you would need 71 milligrams of the venom for every kilogram of the subject to kill them 50% of the time. 
Okay. Yes. All right. I get where you're going with this. Yes. I don't so, think a mouse weighs a full kilogram, right? Uh, two kilograms. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So generally, the higher this number is, the less toxic it is, because it means the more you would need. Okay. Yeah. I, I get what you mean now. Yeah. So the red velvet ant is only 71 milligrams per kilogram. Whereas by comparison, the LD50 of the honeybee, which we talked about in a previous episode, is 2.8 milligrams per kilogram. That's way more potent. Yeah. And that's huh. considered moderately toxic. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I guess I didn't think of the sting of the honeybee to be like that venom potent, I guess. I mean, its potency is one thing, but when you're talking about a human, like you would need a lot of it. Right. That's true, I suppose. Unless you are allergic, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, uh, I thought that was interesting. They do have venom, but it's not really up there in terms of toxicity. I suppose humans probably aren't their target uh, demographic for no, use no. of that venom. <laughs> Next category of ingenuity. This is them doing smart things. This could be tool use, interesting hunting methods, that sort of thing. For ingenuity, I'm giving the red velvet ant a 6 out of 10. Okay. That's all right for a wasp, yeah. though, right? Around ingenuity, I just want to talk about they're not especially aggressive, but they may sting when threatened. When you think of wasp, you usually think, oh, man, he's coming for me. <laughs> <laughs> they actively seek your pain and torment. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the stigma, right? Uh, many... The stigma. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I came up with that one on it the was, fly. Was very good. On the fly. Oh, geez. <laughs> they don't fly. It's okay. Um Many velvet ants will produce a sound when threatened. It's kind of like a squeaking sound. Like the sound I just made just yeah, a second ago into yeah, my microphone? Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, my last point is parasitism reproduction. Okay. Those were not two words I thought you were going to put together. <laughs> yeah. So the reproduction cycle, the males will fly around finding females to mate with. And then the females, they have the fun job of finding a host to lay their eggs inside. Whoa, hold on. What? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yep. What kind of host? Uh, so, by the way, doing this is also known as to parasitize. And they usually do this during the hard life stages of other arthropods. So these could be like pupa or cocoon oh, stages okay. of different kinds of bugs and insects. Basically, whenever it is, like, encapsulated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so, dirty. Yeah. Because they can't fight back. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll they'll lay their eggs inside one of these, and then the hatching larva will feed on that host. Gross. Yeah. That's so ice cold. Yeah. So I think this is kind of common among wasps. Like, laying their eggs inside of some sort of host? Yeah, yeah. I have heard of this, something similar, with the tarantula hawk wasp. Huh. Where they will lay their eggs specifically in tarantulas. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Man. So I guess really our feelings about the wasp's malice <laughs> is maybe a little bit true, but not towards humans. Yeah, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> really, we got off very easy. <laughs> We're not even on the wasp's bad side. Yeah, yeah. And our final category of aesthetics, pretty self-explanatory, how cute and pretty they are. Maybe surprisingly, I give an 8 out of 10 for aesthetics. I think they're very glamorous. <laughs> that is a fantastic <laughs> word to use to describe the way that they look. They're <laughs> shiny. Yeah, shiny, fuzzy, bright red with bands of black. Supposed to say don't touch me, but it just keeps bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> So when you saw one as a child, did you feel compelled to touch it? No. Okay, well, I guess that's a good thing. 
So I saw it, and what it made me think of was a fuzzy caterpillar. Mm. And I knew, like, I'm not supposed to touch those. Smart child. <laughs> now, that, that's for a different reason, of course, but... Mm, similar, though. Yeah, yeah. Something bad could happen. Yeah, so I was like, I'll just watch this fuzzy ant crawl across this parking lot in downtown Jacksonville. <laughs> now, I am not very surprised that you gave this a high aesthetic score, because I know from your preference for Star Wars characters that oh. you are very into the red and black aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. I do know this about you. So yeah. this doesn't surprise me at all. Well, th that comes from Mass Effect, honestly. So in Mass Effect, that's kind of the the default coloration. What, red and black? Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I haven't played Mass Effect. That's okay. It's very good. <laughs> so yeah, that's the, all my, my two notes under aesthetics are pretty color and fuzzy. Hey, <laughs> if you're going to have two qualities going for you, those are two really good ones to have. Yeah. So miscellaneous info to wrap up the red velvet ant. I couldn't find any information on its conservation. So I hope that means it's doing all right. <laughs> and lastly, I want to talk about a nickname that they have. I, I felt like Red Velvet Ant was already pretty no. good. They have a nickname of Cow Killer. How? Right? How? How? <laughs> so it's funny because I just finished talking about how they're, you know, one, their venom is not particularly toxic and two, cows are massive. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of my sources had said, you know, they couldn't really identify why they're called this, but they definitely couldn't find any reports of a sting from one of these killing a cow. But talking to farmers and other folks in the agriculture industry, they kind of have a guess as to where the name may have come from. And that's how uh, with cows, you know, they have cloven feet. Is that? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Hooves. So they, they have these like hooves. Yeah. And uh, it's two segments, I believe. And then between those segments is, you know, the foot. So the idea is a cow could step on one of these and then it gets stung in that area between its hooves. Ugh, gross. And then it causes the cow to run and bolt. Oh, bye. So then what might happen is not paying attention where it's going, could run into a fence, could step into a gopher tortoise hole or something and break its leg. Oh, poor baby. And then usually in this case, it ends up being euthanized. So that's where we think the name may have come from. And then as that was kind of told to people that aren't used to working in agriculture, they assumed that the name meant the venom was just very deadly. Okay. So yeah. this is maybe where like I got the idea maybe that they were particularly toxic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just looking at them, you would probably guess, oh, that's probably pretty bad. I guess that aposemitism or aposemitism or however it's pronounced, yeah. I guess that was particularly <laughs> effective in their case because yeah. like, even I just kind of took a look at a picture and I was like, ooh, that's definitely something uh -huh. that will ruin your day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, it probably doesn't feel good to get stung by one, right? Like, it's probably very painful, even though it's not Yeah, gonna, it's probably pretty painful. It's I not going to kill you, but yeah. it's, it probably hurts real bad. Yeah, but then you've put it in perspective, like, a, a regular honeybee's venom is over 10 times worse, so... But just like any <laughs> other wasp, though, just leave them alone. Yeah. Um, you could probably mess with the males, though, if you're pretty confident. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is the red velvet ant. That's a pretty good one. I feel like I didn't really know hardly anything about them, but I mean, that that's all very interesting. Yeah, I didn't either prior. I don't think I was expecting it to actually be a wasp. This is the first wasp we've talked about. I believe so, yeah. <laughs> now we've talked about a bee and a wasp, but we still haven't even mentioned 
any ants, which <laughs> I feel like is a huge failure on our part because aren't ants the most populous animal like on the entire planet? Oh gosh, it's like I don't know. Most animals on the planet are ants. <laughs> <laughs> There's a 90% chance that you are an ant. <laughs> Look to your left. Look to your right. <laughs> One of these people is an ant. If neither of them is an ant... It could be you. <laughs> I mean, when if we do, I do have a particular ant in mind, <gasps> but we'll get there. Which one is it? It's okay. I'll cut this out. Uh, the. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, I, I I didn't mention this, but I didn't find anyone had actually requested this animal. It was just from the Facebook poll. Well, you requested it because you had seen one and you were thinking about how cool they were. And I think that you just wanted to have an excuse yeah. to learn a little bit more about them. So it was kind of requested by you a little bit, but, yeah, but confirmed neither. by the social media poll. <laughs> what was interesting about that is so the poll goes up both in our Facebook group and on Twitter. Mm. And on Twitter, actually, the Velvet Worm won that poll, but it was a somewhat narrow victory. Okay, But in the Facebook group, it was just a landslide, the Velvet Ant just really dominated in that poll so all together all of the votes added up sure. so that the velvet ant won even though the velvet worm did win the twitter poll all right sorry it's just the way it goes yeah it's a cold world out there for this week's episode, I would like to thank our patrons on Patreon. This week, I'm giving a shout out to Jacob Jones, Vikram Baliga from the Planthropology Podcast, Brianna Feinberg, Megan Clark, Ashley Tucker, Paul Chomo from the Varmints Podcast, the Jungle Gym Queen, and Christina Sanders. Thanks y'all so much for making this happen. All right, hon, what do you got for us this week? This week, I'm talking about the Solomon Islands skink. All right. The scientific name is Carusia zebrata. Wow. Just like a zebra. Okay. Mm-hmm. This species was submitted by Miranda Lowry. Thank you, Miranda. And I'm getting my information from the Central Florida Zoo, Australian Geographic, and a PhD thesis that I found titled Evolution and Ecology of the Prehensile-Tailed Skink, Carusia oh. zebrata, by Ingrid Julie Hagen. Very good. Yes. Which that was a really interesting read. It was from 2011. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure some new information has been updated since then, but it was still really, really interesting. I learned a lot from it. Awesome. Yep. So if you are unfamiliar with this particular skink, uh, and by the way, if you don't know what a skink it is, it is a lizard. It is a type of lizard, mm -hmm. right? So lizard refers to a large subset of animals, including anoles, skinks, monitors, iguanas, stuff like that. Those are all lizards. Now, this one is a very large lizard. This is up to a maximum of 32 inches wow. or 81 centimeters long. Now, that is from the tip of the nose to the end of the tail. Sure. So that's just shy of about three feet long. And about half of their body length is their tail. Still pretty big, though. This is actually the largest species of skink in the world. Not the largest lizard, obviously, because there's monitors and stuff, but it's the largest skink. And these big guys are found, as their name would imply, in the Solomon Islands, which, if you don't know where that is, that is in the South Pacific region. It is um, like a series of islands to the northeast of Australia, just east of Papua New Guinea. Okay. Mm -hmm. And these belong to the taxonomic family of Skinkidae. Nice. Yes. So that is, of course, the family of skinks, which... I mentioned our type of lizard. So some relatives of the Solomon Islands skink 
are the blue-tongued skink, the crocodile skink, which are super cute. Mm. And in America, we have the five-lined skink. These are the ones with the bright, shiny blue tails that we'll see every once in a while. Yeah. Um, that, that one is in the skink family, but it's a little farther removed than the other two that I mentioned a second ago. Huh. So they're all skinks, but the one that we have around here is not as closely related. So I'm going to get right into effectiveness for this skink. For effectiveness, I give them a 9 out of 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, they are. So since they evolved in these islands, they're very well suited and well specialized to these islands. Um, And they are arboreal. So they spend pretty much all of their time up in the canopies of trees. And they're also complete obligate herbivores. They only eat plants. As opposed to other types of skinks, which are a little bit more omnivorous, right? So this herbivorous diet is kind of where their tail comes in really handy because they have a completely prehensile tail. Mm -hmm. So they can wrap their tail around tree branches for a better grip, or they can even hang from their tail and use it like a rappelling rope. Cute. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, So they are the only skink in the world with a prehensile tail. Wow. None of the other skinks have this. Now, we talked about the chameleon. Mm-hmm. We talked about a veiled chameleon a while back, and they also have prehensile tails like this, but they're not skinks. <laughs> so Correct. This is, this is really unique to this particular species of skink. Now, their scales are this bright green color, but they can also have these yellow and brown patterns that give them really good camouflage in the trees. Um, And actually those patterns, sometimes they look like just spots or splotches, Mm -hmm. but sometimes they look like zebra stripes, which is where the zebrata part of their name comes from. Okay. Yeah. Um, Another thing that helps them camouflage is that they move very slowly. They're very slow. Oh. They just kind of slowly creep along the branches. Um, And this helps them maintain their camouflage and prevents them from being seen by predators like birds of prey that might spot them. Yeah. Yeah. So since they themselves are not predators, they don't really have to move very fast, you know, like they're not chasing prey down or anything like that. They're just kind of moseying around trying to find the next juicy leaf. So I thought that was an interesting kind of, you know, they're like, eh, we don't really need to move that fast. Yeah. Not exactly a moving target. (laughs) No, they're fine. So, uh, but what's interesting is that even though they are herbivores and they have these really small teeth because they're not meant for like, catching prey or whatever they still have really impressive jaw strength which gives them a pretty painful bite oh so if you bother them and they're harassed they can still do some real damage like they can bite real hard so you still don't want to mess with them so since they live in such warm humid environments they like to hide inside of tree hollows during the hottest hours of the day so they kind of prefer to come out when the light is low so their behavior uh rhythm i guess ranges anywhere from crepuscular meaning active during dawn and dusk Mm -hmm. um, or they can even be nocturnal okay yeah so uh, this being the case they have really good eyesight Mm. they can see really well so this allows them to navigate in low light settings where they like to be active to keep away from too much heat and they have a good sense of smell too so they're pretty good at perception so like other lizards they smell by flicking their tongue and then using their tongue to push scents up against the roof of their mouth where they have that jacobson's organ it's just like other lizards and and like how snakes like flick their tongue to smell yep now another interesting thing about their physical sort of whole situation is that they are ovoviviparous 
Okay, this this is referring to reproduction. Yes, they give birth to live young. Okay. Rather than laying eggs, it's usually one at a time, but twins or even triplets have been recorded. And this kind of sucks for this particular skink because their babies can be born up to 13 inches long already. Oh. At birth well (laughs) (laughs) so my heart goes out to the poor prehensile tail skink moms (laughs) out there who are having to push out these big babies but i can relate i can relate (laughs) my baby was 10 pounds four ounces so i mean that's just the way it goes so this is a pretty good transition into the next category for us, which is ingenuity. For ingenuity, I actually give this skink an 8 out of 10. Really? Yes. And you're about to find out why. This is the only species of skink and one of very few species of lizard in the world that lives in social family groups. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is called a circulus. That's, I learned that that is the particular name for this and when it applies to lizards. Oh. <laughs> and this type of group typically consists of related individuals. So it might include a mated breeding pair and then their offspring. And their offspring can stay with the family for up to a couple of years before moving on and starting their own family group. And what's really interesting is that the babies stay close to the mother and the mother actually takes care of the babies for the first like six months of their life. So maternal care is not something you see often in reptiles at all. You know, the only other reptile that I can think of that cares for its young are like gators and crocodile, like crocodilians, basically. Yeah, to some extent, yeah. Yeah, but they, they'll they basically, like, protect their babies. Um, but so this is a, a skink that does that, which I think is, it's very unique. For yeah. not, a, not a lot of other lizards do this. So uh, something that this helps them with is that sometimes newborn skinks will eat the waste matter, in air quotes, of their parents. Ah. Yes. So. This again. Yeah, we're back to this. <laughs> Um, this is not the first time we've visited this concept on the show. <laughs> um, but like other animals that this concept is applied to, this helps them develop the gut bacteria that they need to digest their food. This is something that we've seen in some other sort of folivore type animals, right? We saw this in koalas and pandas and stuff. Yeah. I want to say it's the first reptile, though, we've talked about that does this. There are probably many, many others that do this. It's just this is the first one I've explicitly sure, mentioned. Sure. <laughs> Maybe we've just gotten like a little more comfortable talking about gross <laughs> stuff on this show that like now I'm OK to I'm like not afraid to go there. Well, I'm betting the gut bacteria has something to do with them being fully herbivorous. Probably. Yeah. Because that that is just a common thread of what we've noticed in the other animals we've talked about. And the last thing that I included for ingenuity is that when they're threatened, they will hiss to make themselves a little bit more intimidating. They'll make a really nasty hissing sound. So they've got the hiss, they've got the bite. You know, I feel like if they're being threatened by a predator, most of the predators that they're going to be encountering up in the trees like that are probably going to be birds of prey. Mm-hmm. But the that tail, if they've got their tail wrapped around the branch, it's probably going to be really easy to pluck them off, right? Oh, but one, I forgot to say this earlier, but one interesting thing about their tail is that it cannot regenerate. Um, so like other lizards that can drop and regenerate their tail, they cannot do that probably because it is prehensile and is, you know. Complexity. Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So finally, this brings me to aesthetics for the prehensile-tailed skink. Give it a 7 out of 10. It 
uh, has a really cute face. It has mm. these really rounded features. Like its nose is very blunt and its cheeks are very wide. So it gives you just a very like a, a plump and pleasant face. And they have a really nice calm smile. So I think they're pretty cute. Mm. And their markings are pretty nice to look at. Other than that, they look like a pretty straightforward uh, lizard. Okay. Yeah. Cute. Not particularly striking or impressive, in, but but cute. Seven out of ten. All right. Yeah. So miscellaneous information for this skink. Their conservation status is not assessed. I couldn't find any information for like any official conservation status for them. Sure. So it's really hard to get good, reliable uh, data on their populations because they are really difficult to observe in the wild because they live in these rainforests on the Solomon Islands wh- where there are a lot of barriers to field research. So it's hard for scientists to get out there and really get a good number on how many are out there. Hmm. And not to mention that they're also, you know, hiding in hollow trees. They're very well camouflaged. Sure. They're just difficult to spot in general, but it's also difficult for scientists to actually get out there to get a good number on how many are left. So the forests in Solomon Islands are being heavily used for things like agriculture and industrial logging by foreign companies that have come into the Solomon Islands and are logging and exporting, Mm -hmm. and also residential expansions to make room for a growing human population on the Solomon Islands. Um, So all of these factors are contributing to the fragmentation of the habitat of these skinks, Mm -hmm. which we've talked about before is where animals can't, they'll have pockets of populations in different habitats, but they can't get to each other. So they can't reach each other to find new mates. And then that leads to like inbreeding um, and isolated populations and reduced genetic diversity in those populations, which makes them more vulnerable to things like diseases. So the habitat fragmentation is really not working in their favor and also just habitat loss, right? So um, industrial logging doesn't just make that immediate area unusable to skinks and other types of wildlife, but it also like degrades the habitat of the surrounding area by affecting the water quality and affecting the air quality and really just in general, like that whole area just becomes completely disrupted. They're also threatened directly by humans who catch them either for a food source or export them as pets. Oh. Yeah. So since they have this really docile nature and all of these really interesting features that I mentioned earlier, um, it makes them really desirable pets. Like lots of people want to just have them and keep them. But their export and import is heavily regulated under the Appendix 2 of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Oh. So many of them are bred in captivity and then sold within the pet trade. Um, But even still, there's an illegal market for wild-caught prehensile-tailed skinks. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really just best not to worry about keeping one as a pet. You really don't have to do that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they are are still wild animals that need a lot of space. They're an arboreal, uh, a massive arboreal lizard that is, uh, you know, a social creature. And you probably don't need to worry too much about keeping one as a pet. But there are lots of places where you can find them in zoos. So if you just really, really, really want to check one out, I would check out your local zoo and see if they have one because I was looking around a little bit and I realized how many zoos near us have prehensile-tailed skinks. 
Apparently, oh. it's a lot. Apparently, oh. they're a very common <laughs> zoo animal to have. Does does ours have one? You know, I don't think Jacksonville Zoo has one, but I know Central Florida Zoo has them, which is not too far away from us. Okay. Yeah. Just a really, really cool, a lot of features about this skink that make it unique, that's really set it apart from the other ones. So I thought this one was really cool and interesting to learn about. Miranda Lowry had actually requested this species last year, and we didn't do it. And then she requested it again. And then I was like, <laughs> okay, let me check this out. And I checked it out, and I was like, how have I not done this already? Yeah, I was really yeah, kicking yeah, yeah. myself for not getting to it the first time around. So. Uh-huh. It's a really, really cool lizard. I really enjoyed learning about it. Very good. Yeah. (laughs) I'll have to look up the picture, though. They're really cute. Oh, wait. Here, I'll show you one. Oh, big boy. I know. Isn't he big? Oh, so one last thing that I thought was really funny is that when I was doing research and I found this article about them from Australian Geographic, the title of the article referred to them as absolute units. (laughs) All right. Well, I would like to humbly thank everybody who has joined us this week and in previous weeks. We really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to us and go on all of these fun animal journeys with us. If you could take like two seconds out of your day to review us on whatever podcatcher you're listening on, that would really mean a lot to us. If you take a screenshot of a review that you have left us on either iTunes or Podchaser and send that to us on social media, I will send you a free sticker. That has our logo on it. It's really cute. I've seen them. They're very cute. They're really adorable. She won't let me apply. What You can't review the show <laughs> that you're on. It, it's great. Thumbs up. <laughs> Where's my sticker? <laughs> you can just get one off the table. It's behind you. <laughs> okay, Christian's on a heist <laughs> to steal a sticker that he already owns. Uh, If you have an animal species that you would like to hear us talk about on this show, you could submit those to us either via social media or at my email address, which is ellen at justthezooofus.com. As a special little hint, we are currently low on both amphibian and reptile requests. So hit us with both of those. And finally, just to wrap things up, I would like to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides. We love it. It has served us incredibly well. Actually, just this week, somebody tweeted that they were checking out our show for the first time ever and specifically mentioned that the theme song slaps. <laughs> yeah, they, that would be correct. It's true. It's the best part of the show. <laughs> I bet there's people that listen all the way through to the very, very end of the episode just to hear the end of Louis Zong's track, Adventuring. <laughs> just listen to the beginning. Skip. <laughs> they just hit the forward 15 seconds button until it gets to the end of the song. <laughs> Shh. Nobody tell those people that the entire track is available on Spotify <laughs> for free. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, guys. Bye. Bye.